This week I have Dr. Chris McClellan, the professor himself, who's back on and he is debunking myths. You'll enjoy this one. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want and should know about health, fitness, nutrition and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent or manage any injury, disease or other health-related condition. This podcast is brought to you by Hydroxy Burn Shred. Get in the fat burning zone, both physically and mentally, with this potent combination of thermogenic fat burners and mood boosting nootropic ingredients. Scientifically designed to help you reach your weight loss goals, destroy stubborn fat cells, speed metabolism, boost energy, and improve your mood. With an industry leading four grams of acetyl L carnitine plus green tea extract, guarana, and hydroxy citric acid, Hydroxy Burn Shred will take your training and weight loss journey to a whole new level. Welcome to Body Science HQ. Today's podcast, I've got Dr. Mac with me and it's a little special. I'm getting a lot of emails, a lot of text messages, a lot of DMs and people asking us questions and asking us to debunk myths and challenging some of the things we've put out, challenging some of the things that we should put out. So I put together lots of questions and uh, Dr. Mac is here to answer them. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about your qualifications for those that are about to hear this probably for the first time? Sure, mate. Happy to be back in the house. Uh, so my background is in exercise physiology, exercise science. I have a PhD in exercise physiology, endocrinology, immunology, and biochemistry. I got a master's degree in physio, a few other creds here and there. So 25 years in high-performance sport, 15 years in academia. I'm a professor of exercise and sports science. So I'm just put that out there because I think you are the person that can debunk some of these myths. We can have a crack, man. I think we can go through a few. There's a You could spend a week on these, but... Uh, and we will. We'll keep putting them together and we'll yeah, there's out out there. I think this is a good series to put together as a, as a regular, to be honest. Yep. And I want to start with the big one. And it's, What's the uh, big one? It's, well, it's a fitness industry. It's a it's a great place to be. And so we're going to start with women shouldn't train like men. Oh, I okay. hear that all the time. Yeah. True so false? False, false. Rubbish. So basically, if you think about the anatomy, male and female anatomy, take the primary sex characteristics out of it. I'm talking, you yeah. know, I know reproductive right. stuff. Yeah. Take that out of it. A quad is a quad. A hammy is a hammy. A bicep is a bicep. Yes, there are some changes or some variations around hormone function and most people would say testosterone and the answer is yeah but in terms of how do you work a glute max in a guy it's the same as a girl Mm -hmm. so the only thing you would take into consideration would be your loading parameters and good research that says pound for pound females and males even in strength characteristics for the lower limb in particular are pretty much the same as men like there's no real difference at all so how are you going to work how are you going to work the muscles the answer to the question is complete garbage okay debunked debunked hey we should have a boom or something going there should be something right there should be something that comes out just goes not happening this one we copped a fair bit of flack over and i'd like to touch on it again did you and yeah we did did you really we did yeah Yeah. like a lot of people believe that uh, adrenal fatigue is real yeah right you say that it's not can you tell us why? well my world endocrine society says it's not so this is a and why would they know what they're talking about we're correct right (laughs) this is a really it's a can of worms people are indoctrinated to thinking that they have a certain clinical presentation you know I've, we did a podcast on cortisol probably the very first and podcast that's and that's where from. i landed okay so don't shoot any of us shoot the world endocrine society it comes from and i spoke about this at length a guy borrowed a book in 1998 his name was james wilson and he invented the term prior to that it never existed it is a broadband term used to give a pre- precise or a profound diagnosis for a lot of really general symptoms 
Yep. Not signs, symptoms. The difference is something that someone tells us versus something we can measure. If you go into any allied health professional and you tell them, I'm tired, I'm fatigued, my appetite's no good, I'm not sleeping well, I feel run down, and they do nothing else other than say to you on the spot, you're adrenally fatigued, it's just so terribly bad, it's just not even funny, right? So what are they? They could be anything, mate. This is the answer. And this is why from this is why no general practitioner, no endocrinologist will ever tell you that you're adrenally fatigued. It yep. doesn't exist in mainstream medicine. Now, there is also- What's a term we could use then? You are cortisol resistance? Yep. For sure. Just like you're insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying for a minute that people don't, who have got chronically elevated stress hormones, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there aren't any ramifications for that. What I'm saying is that this one size fits all term is garbage. It was, it was invented by a naturopath and they're the people telling you that's what they've got. And it makes, it's a really easy one for people to appear authoritative on a topic by saying, ah, oh, Greg, you're, you're adrenally fatigued, mate. And it's so now ingrained in the, the vernacular within health and fitness that every man and their dog thinks they've got it. And I say to you, one size doesn't fit all. Tell me something clinically that is representative of that. Has anyone even measured cortisol? Because I've done thousands of cortisol tests, right? Mm -hmm. That's my thing. And I've said this on the very first podcast, most people don't even have elevated cortisol. Right. So if you are in a really high stress environment, we've talked about half-life of cortisol at 66 minutes, man. We've talked yep. about this. There will be spikes throughout the day. This is all very normal. You know, if you have a lower waking response, absolutely something's going on. Do we have some sort of hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis issue? Probably. Is your adrenal gland tired? Because that's what you're saying. Yep. Right? Fatigued, yeah. It's that's very unlikely to be something that's going on, right? It's the same as saying, you know, my pancreas is tired, and that's why I've got diabetes. Rubbish, like, honestly. So I'm not, you know, it's a glucocorticoid cortisol. It does bind with glucocorticoid receptors. There are, we talked about this, and I don't want to rehash it because yeah. we've been there. And if people want to talk about, hear what I had to say the last time, it was episode one. We talked about it, it called on, cortisol. It was a cortisol episode, and we talked at length around the role with body fat and difficulties around losing fat and perhaps gaining fat it isn't uh, you know we know that cortisol is an antagonist for insulin we know that the cortisol uh, mobilizes glucose so we know all this stuff right what i'm saying to you is all research pubmed i'm talking about peer review so i don't think i don't know if people know what peer review means but in in the mainstream research when i when i research is not google by the way right people who are undertaking <laughs> research even if you're reading the literature, even if you're reading the literature, that's not research. The research is the work that goes out to find new novel yes. outcomes, yep. right? That's the whole, that's my world in academia, right? We've got to contribute to the understanding with regard to a question. And that's when I'm talking to PhD students all the time, I say, what's your question, right? And that's where you start. You start with the question and work back from there. You don't find, you know, you don't have this solution and then find a question for it. It's, that does not how it works. We've talked at length around that and, and and the whole hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and all that sort of thing. So I'm not saying that cortisol isn't a problem. I'm saying it probably, it may be for certain people who have high or low cortisol. But what I'm saying is that the term adrenal fatigue is an oversimplification of a very complex milieu of symptoms that may take into consideration many other systems. There's no one thing, right? I talked about this ripple effect and cause and effect and all that. You know, there's thyroid function, there's and hypoactive thyroidism. You know, there's a whole lot of other metabolic conditions. There's my ramble. But basically, you know, we can post the literature. You can't argue 
with hard science, right? Yep. And this is where people go, oh, you know, they are indoctrinated because someone told them some point that they had adrenal fatigue, that person was right forever. Even in the, you know, in the face of overwhelming evidence that something is the contrary and there's no such thing, people will still believe what their personal trainer told them, even though the world authority on hormones says it doesn't. See, you just can't, you know, I'm pretty passionate about so, it because I see it every day. So great story. Does yeah. adrenal fatigue exist? No. Done. Debunked. Mm. Get rid of it. The term, garbage. Garbage. Move on. Next one. What are you going to wait for the haters? Oh, you know what? You, you can't uh, hate science. Well, but put the we'll put the paper up. People can read it, yeah, right? Exactly. I think we put it up on the first one. Yeah, we probably did. So maybe you should summarise it. Obviously, people didn't read it, judging by the amount of mail we got. Mate, another big one I'm hearing you, is yeah. PTs telling clients they're not activating their glutes when they're doing something like a deadlift. Yeah. So I've put a bit on social because I'm pretty active on the social. Yeah. If you can stand up, your glutes are firing, right? Okay. So glute activation another hugely popular term in the health and fitness industry, and I I get the a lot of mainly female competitors in the physique space saying my PT or my trainer told me that I'm not activating my glutes when I deadlift yeah. right well you can't deadlift without activating your glutes so debunked so debunked and there's another term called glute amnesia and dead butt syndrome I think it's called I haven't yeah I'm pretty sure that's what it's called the philosophy is or the rationale is that people sit in an office chair all day mm-hmm. and they go into either a well it's normally a either an anterior pelvic tilt or a posterior pelvic tilt right so in the physio world world, we talk about lower cross syndrome. So people who, if you're in an anterior pelvic tilt, for example, you might have really tight hip flexors and you would have generally have, we call them, your glutes are loose and weak basically at the back, right? Or into your paraspinals and that sort of thing. It's not, your glutes don't have amnesia. They don't have a memory. They don't have an on-off switch, right? Nothing really happens in isolation. So glute activation exercise is super popular, right? I call it a warm-up. People call it activation. The research, again, don't shoot me, but there's stuff and we can put it on the the website. Good recent research by Crow, a whole bunch of people who've done a lot of work. What we know is, and I'm talking about all of the the clams and the external rotation stuff, the fire hydrant stuff yep. that people are doing. The abundance of evidence tells us that those exercises are actually really effective if your workout is a power-related workout. So you're doing your plyos. They're saying it's really effective. But what they're saying for force production, so if you're doing a strength workout, if you're going to go and do deadlifts and Romanians and stuff like that, you actually can have a detrimental effect on your force outputs by 10 to 15%. So again, I'm probably it's probably semantics here for me. And some may argue the same with my philosophies around adrenal fatigue. Is it is it just we're arguing the, t- the toss on terminology? Well, let's just keep it tight. Like, you know, let's, let's keep it in line with the literature and, and and the research, and that's what it's telling us. So your glutes don't have amnesia. Debunked. Debunked. Gluteal activation exercises effective for power? Yes. For strength? Not so much. That's the research. That's okay. what it's telling us. Nice. Well, if we're going to go down that path, uh-huh. heavyweights bulk me up, lightweights tone me. Yeah. So again, garbage. So if you think about, this is actually really interesting. So I was having a conversation with a PT the other day about strength. How do you get strong? What are the muscle adaptations that occur lifting heavy weights versus lighter weights. This is a conversation around muscle fiber types. And there's two ways to get increased strength. There's neurophysiological adaptations. And so I'm talking about, run with me on this. I'm going to run. Think called rate coding, which is basically the firing rate of the action potential that goes to the motor unit that causes a uh, cross bridging that leads to force production shortening within a muscle. We call it, talk about twitch summation and a synchronization of action potentials. So it's the effectiveness of the stimulus to the muscle 
to activate. So that's a neural adaptation to strength, right? So when you, you know, a lot of people go to the gym and they want to increase muscle, for example, they might find that their strength improves really quickly. Within about four to six weeks, they might get really good adaptations in their strength, but they look in the mirror, they haven't put on a lot of muscle, no real change in the mirror. And a lot of people drop off their exercises because they think, oh, that's not very effective, you know? Yeah, okay. So the cross-sectional area changes require much more adaptation, probably eight weeks minimum. We've talked about hypertrophy as well, in that you need mechanotransduction, which is loading, you need metabolic adaptation, and you need a little bit of trauma. One of the things with the heavy weights, strength training, you can get strong. Now, to get strong in a normal environment, you do need to recruit higher order motor units, type 2 muscle fibers, fast twitch muscle fibers. To do that, the literature is really clear. You need to work in a repetition range from 1 to about 5, or around 85% or higher of your one repetition maximum. So anyone who trains knows what I'm talking about with those sort of terms. That's just how you do it, right? Can you get stronger? Can a novice get stronger lifting lighter weights? Absolutely, yes. Because there's a there's a whole range of adaptations that occur. But one of the most simplistic ones is that you just get, there's a motor learning response. So when people jump on it, you take an absolute beginner to the gym and they try and do a bench press. They're all wobbly, right? They're all over the shop. They can hardly move anything, right? But there's a trainability component to that so that over time they get more effective at doing bench press. Just on the basis of that, you'll get a better motor unit recruitment, you'll lift more, all that sort of thing. So toning, let's cut toning is about fat loss and muscle mass development, or at least maintaining lean muscle mass. You can get an increased metabolic, so this is a really broad conversation, but if you want to lose fat, you've got to increase, you've got to have been calorically restricted and you've got to have metabolic demand. You can do circuits and cross training, all that sort of stuff. And you might call that high reps. And the toning up is from the fat loss and the muscle mass development, which is the recruitment of the fast twitch muscle fibers and the slow twitch. Low reps won't necessarily bulk you up in isolation because the low reps are recruiting the higher order motor units that are actually in the short term creating more of a neurophysiological adaptation than a cross-sectional area adaptation. So it's intensity versus volume. So high intensity, strength, high volume, bodybuilding. And the reason, so bodybuilders don't have to be that strong, right? Although, you know, increase cross-sectional area, increase your strength as well. But yeah, so the, the myth, it's a myth to say that. Do I, I think we debunked that one. I think so. It was There's a some long, big, long some answer. Big words in that it was one, a long answer to impressive. a simple problem. I think yeah, the yeah. people that get that will like that answer. Oh, well, For the rest so. of us, we'll have to listen to it again. Pretty, It's pretty straightforward. <laughs> you're safe doing <clears throat> girls, you're safe doing heavy weights. Yeah, nice. Here's a big one that comes through this office. Can children strength train? And when I say children, let's talk six to 15 year olds. The answer is yes, absolutely, positively. So all of the research, the biggest concern, the biggest myth associated with kids and strength training has been this long-standing myth that there's damage to the epiphyseal plates, the growth plates of long bones yep. effectively. And so the, the risk is, well, the, and I've heard this since I was a kid. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons my dad didn't want to buy me weights when I was young. But they would say, well, okay, too much load will fracture cause little micro fractures in the growth plate that'll scar up and you'll stop growing right so i can tell you how much literature there is around that i don't know if you can see that but the answer is zero that's a zero for everyone who can't see there's none the overwhelming majority of research tells us that the the benefits to children doing structured well-designed strength programs i'm not talking about just letting kids run wild in a gym yeah i get that throwing stuff around structure i get it Yep. So as long as it's well-structured and, and periodized and all that sort of good stuff, then we can absolutely get good increases in strength. We can get increases in bone mineral density. We can get improvements in body composition. We can get improved athletic capacity, all really good stuff. What's interesting is that even in pre-pubescent boys and girls, where we don't have necessarily the testosterones and yep. the things like that as post-pubescent, we can still get good improvements in strength in younger 
children. So between, you know, six, ten. And put it this way, right? If, if you're going to – they probably don't do it anymore, kids. But kids who used to play hopscotch and running around and kicking a ball and stuff, hopscotch is jumping on one leg. Exactly. It's called plyometrics. Yeah. People pay money to do it now, right? So <laughs> kids are doing that every day of the week, right? So if you can hop on one leg – you can do weights, right? No, absolutely. Debunked? Yeah, absolutely. You just want to be... Careful. Yeah, you want to be responsible. You you know, we don't want to overload. The recommendations are pretty clear. You know, a couple, two to three times a week. Rep range is somewhere between, you know, 8, 15. Moderate intensity sort of weight training. Full body, you know, this sort of stuff. There's huge components to that. Oh, I've got I've got kids. You've got kids. Everyone, you know, my kids have been doing strength training since, well, structured stuff since... Seven or eight? Yeah, nice. About eight? Yeah, mm. nice. Debunked. And they're weapons. You're going to enjoy this next one. Am I? Yeah, because you, you love celebrity trainers. Oh, yes. Waist trainers, corsets, why they train. Oh, yeah, okay. So never worn one, but you see them a little bit, right? The waist trainers mm. and corsets and the, the listeners will, they're all over social media, right? Yeah. And there are some pretty famous people who are selling them. So the answer is BS, right? Complete, complete. The rationale, whilst I've never seen anything that absolutely substantiates why you would wear them, I can only assume it's got to do with some sort of postural core stability thing. Anyway, there's not a ton of research on them, but I found it, I have seen a couple of papers. Okay, so here's the thing. Heart rate drops by about 20%. Blood flow, even to your peripheries, by about 36%. We're already not in a particularly glowing environment. Perspiration, so your ability to dissipate heat is modified by up to 90%. There's, I found one study that looked at metabolism, energy, mm-hmm. and they found that there was about a 10% increase in energy utilization because the thing was so tight, it actually required an increased amount of muscle activation to move. So the waist trainer itself wasted time. Complete. I actually think they will increase your risk of injury downstream because if you if you train with a waist trainer, if you're if you're suggesting for one second that there's a spot reduction around lipolysis, fat loss around the waist, then you're right up there with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. You know, it's just so outrageously non-physiologically capable. It's just not even funny. It's hard for me to even articulate an answer because it's just complete rubbish. You can't spot reduce, and that's probably another one on our myths list. It was my next question. So spot reduction is garbage and has been blown out of the water multiple times. In terms of fat loss, you don't get to choose where the fat loss comes from. And so it's about caloric restriction, metabolic demand, all the stuff we talk about all the time with fat loss and it's been well described. Some people have a propensity to store fat in different areas and they'll lose it from different areas. You don't get to choose and you're not going to have any input to it. The only way you get spot reduction is lipo. So waste trainers, waste of time. I'm really sorry. Spot, spot reduction, garbage. Well, that's going to lead into my next one too. There's a set number of fat cells in the body. Yeah, so we talked about that in another podcast, actually, and we talked about body fat. You can, yes, we do get what's called um, a hyperplasic response, an increased number of cells in adipose tissue. We don't get it in muscle, but we see it in in fat tissue, in adipocytes. And I don't know if you remember, but I think it was about episode three of our podcast. We can see body um, adipose fat cells can expand by about 400% of their volume and then they will undergo hyperplasia and you'll get more of them. That's a complete misnomer about the number of fat cells in the body. Debunked, another myth. Yeah, sorry. And I actually heard a pretty notorious social media person saying, who was a nurse, I think, and she was on social media saying, you've only got, you've got a set number of fat cells in your body. Rubbish. There you go. There you go. There you have it. There you go. Okay, max protein you can take in in one sitting around 25, 30 grams. We've heard that forever. Yeah, we have, hey? Yeah. So that's a it's been a pretty dynamic thing. So 
again, I'm in my lane. The rationale had been that the body can't, so from a protein synthesis perspective, we could only handle 20 to 25 grams per meal and anything mm. over and above that ended up as metabolized fat and so forth, right? Mm. The ISSN, International Society of Sports Nutrition, Brad Schoenfeld, Aaron Aragon, Alan Aragon, 2017 position statement very clearly states, rubbish. Rubbish. So basically we're at a position now where the recommendations are somewhere in the vicinity of 0.4 grams of protein per kilo of body mass per meal. So for me, I'm 105 kilos. I'm at 40, 41 grams per meal. Nice. Good no calculation. Drums. Can yep. we put that calcula- calculation in the bottom of this, please? So because there- you know it'll happen. A lot of people want to actually go and... Yeah, we'll show them the paper. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So you can go up to, they're saying a maximum of about 0.55. So for me, it's about 58 grams of protein per meal across four to five meals a day. So it's... Lucky you love meat. That's it, man. It's all about proteins where it's at. So here's another one we get asked a lot. Can I do specific exercises to target to target different sections of the muscle? Unfortunately not. So the muscle works on an all or nothing type of process, right? Yep. There will be some that will tell you you can hit lower abs or upper ab yep. in a different type of exercise. You just can't. You might feel it. Like So people will say when they're doing, one of the ones is uh, a hanging leg raise where you bring your hips up. Here's the inconvenient reality to that exercise. That's a hip flexor exercise. You're working so and iliacus. You get minimal abdominal, rectus abdominis, unless, so what does a rectus abdominis do? It flexes the spine. If you're not flexing the spine, you're not working rectus abdominis. So rubbish. But bottom line is, if you think about how a muscle contracts, it's an all or nothing approach. So action potential comes along, a depolarization occurs of the, it's pretty involved, but action potential through sarcoplasmic reticulum, release of calcium, change of the contractile proteins on the on the muscle, etc. We get cross bridging that occurs, shortening force production, con- concentric contraction, right? Pretty straightforward. Yep. It's all or nothing. You cannot just work your lower ab and not hit your upper ab. Debunk. I've got two more for, maybe three more for you. How's that? Yeah. Okay. I've got a couple I reckon we can toss around as well. What oh, else yeah. you got? Lactic acid causes muscle soreness after a workout. Yeah. This has been around a while, right? I would say Cori cycle, right? And you would say why for out there but basically the quarry cycle is the process so i say to people what happens to lactate after we exercise right so lactate is produced in the muscle during mostly during anaerobic metabolism yep. so in, in the absence of oxygen and we get an increased amount of lactate it's actually produced on the back of glucose metabolism it's called glycolysis and that produces what's called pyruvate and then lactate dehydrogenase breaks that down into lactate effectively and and so that's that's pretty much what we're talking about now lactate then within the liver is metabolized back into glucose. So any sort of residual, I suppose, it's called gluconeogenesis is mm-hmm. the term. So within the liver, so we get lactate produced within the muscle, goes into our bloodstream, gets into our liver, and then within the liver, lactate is converted via lactate dehydrogenase and into pyruvate, and then pyruvate is converted in via gluconeogenesis back into glucose. So there is no role for lactate in residual DOMS. DOMS, delayed onset of muscle soreness, is caused by microtrauma. That is the result of a new or, or different exercise stimulus, effectively. Mostly eccentric. I saw someone on social media last week put a post out that was around myths and misconceptions. And they said that, you do you have to have muscle soreness to get adaptation in a muscle and they were saying that was garbage it kind of isn't it kind of isn't mm-hmm. so you you actually want this is the whole principle of specificity and individualization right law of diminishing returns pick yep. whatever you want right if you do the same thing all the time and the same loads then you won't get muscle soreness and you won't adapt yep. do you necessarily have to be 
you know, in excruciating pain for three days after a workout? Of course not. But you know yourself, and I do the same. If you mix your if you mix your exercises up, you can still hit your back or whatever. You might hit it on a different angle, whatever it might be. Do some one arm stuff or some, you know, whatever. Um, you do you do different exercises, which you should do as part of a progressive overload and novel stimulus approach to your training. Then you'll get some subtle little, you know, soreness. I've been training. Yeah, Ellen, you've been training. I've been training for freaking twenty five years. You know, so more. I still get sore yeah. when I mix up my workouts, and I but I don't look. For soreness. I don't think we need to look for it, but lactate's got nothing to do with it. The bump. Within about two hours of your routine being done, pretty much done. What else you got? Oh, let's throw one out there. The more you sweat, the more fat you lose. Yeah, that's garbage. Garbage? Yeah. Sweat rates and uh, fat loss are not linked. Debunked? Sweat's about heat dissipation through uh, things like convection, radiation, this sort of stuff. So we sweat as an as an attempt to cool our core, te- well, yes. reduce our core temp. You can sweat a lot and you know people who are sweaters yes I do they're not losing any more fat or, or weight than someone who doesn't sweat mm. as much no garbage debunked debunked here's another one that I often hear from um, slightly older populations yeah Olympic lifting is dangerous yeah it's only well the answer is no it's not what I would say to you is though they are very advanced exercises so I'm talking about snatches and overhead snatches and things like that clean and jerks power cleans they are if you walk into I think there was some you know there's been a few group fitness places Mm -hmm. that have copped a fair bit of heat in the past for using power cleans with relatively inexperienced individuals now can you hurt yourself sure but necessarily of them being dangerous and increase your risk of injury if you walk in you've never done a power clean before in your life and you try and muscle it up and you go into a hyperextension position you're probably going to hurt yourself you're probably going to tear something you might get up you might even end up with a stress fracture there's lots of things that can happen but again on their own if they're implemented into a well-designed program and you've done you know been taught how to do it properly pretty safe does anyone my personal opinion is the only people that need to do overhead snatching type exercises up like crossfitters who have to do it in competition Mm -hmm. olympic weightlifters people like that because if the tech isn't great with a barbell for example yeah and if you don't have good thoracic mobility and that's where a lot of people lose out they don't have the ability to extend through the uh, thoracic spine so they're pretty stiff through their middle back and if you've ever tried to do an overhead squat even with a broomstick if you don't have good mobility through your spine you're stuffed yeah exactly because the minute the the weight moves forward usually of your center of gravity goodbye you're not going to hold it yeah. and it's the same people will compensate by trying to you know recruit all different muscles that aren't even associated with the exercise hugely technical there's a level of technical competency required to do those exercises as well but i think the original point that they what are dangerous they're not dangerous no okay. not if you're doing properly perfect mate well we might we might drop it out at that like sure at the dr mac I only have one. I just want to say one. One? Fasted cardio. Oh. The only one I wanted to mention is fast, because this is my bugbear. Yep. Here's the inconvenient truth of fast. Fasted cardio is great. Don't get me wrong. But what I say to the people, here's the catch. The whole premise of fasted cardio is to be in a carbohydrate depleted or a glucose depleted state when you do your cardio so that you burn more fat. Absolutely. Theory, rock solid, sounds brilliant to me. Mm -hmm. The problem is that for the liver to be empty effectively, I'll keep it simple, of glucose, or glycogen and glucose, you need about 14 to 16 hours. So if you have your last meal at 8 p.m. and you have your normal evening meal and maybe you have some carbs or whatever, and then you get up at 5 a.m., which is what, nine hours later, and do your cardio, you're probably... 
you won't be. You won't be carbohydrate depleted. So you're just going to burn carbs. You're just doing morning cardio. Now, is it good that you're doing cardio in the morning? Absolutely. Definitely. Yep. But are you fasted? No. No. So again, people say to me, Maca semantics. It, well, it sort of is, but let's, if you're going to call it something, let's be precise. So fasted cardio, brilliant. Get your timing right. You need, even to you give yourself 12 hours. If you eat at 6 p.m., which is early. Don't get up early to train. No, get, we'll get up and train at 6. You'll be fine. That's good. Debunked. I think fasted so. Fasted cardio. Well, no, fasted cardio is good. No, the whole, I'll have dinner at 8 o'clock at yeah, night. Yeah, just up get your timing 4:30 right. 4.30 and train. Get your timing right. So fasted cardio is not about not having anything before you train. It's about the period before you train. Good. Well, at the Dr. Matt, we're going to do more of these. So guys, uh, feel free to send in your uh, messages. You've had no problem finding where to send them so far, so we won't bother going on about <laughs> that too much. Uh, don't hate the, what is it they say? Don't hate the, don't kill the messenger. Mate, we're just here to debunk me. Producing science, man. Yeah. And this is the thing, I'm, I'm, we will not, I will not, and people know me, know that I'm not tossing things up. I'm not plucking them out of thin air. I will only present to you evidence-based things, yep. and by evidence I mean legitimate science from peer-reviewed literature. And the whole peer review thing means that it's gone before a panel of experts who are unbiased, who have read the research and identified that it has been conducted in a ethically, you know, effective manner and meets those standards. So that, that you know, that's what it's all about. It's yes. not. It's not just plucking isolated studies out of the middle of nowhere. It's about using good evidence. Perfect. Might try and get one of these out every few weeks, I think. There's a ton. We can get through them. Oh, mate. Thanks for um, thanks for coming in again. It's been awesome. good to have you back in the seat. Lovely. Good, good to be here. There. Train hard. Enjoy, everyone. Today's podcast was brought to you by our partners in Fit, Happy and Healthy, ASN, Nutrition Warehouse, DY Discount Vitamins, Fat Burners Only, Evelyn Fay, Mr. Supplement, or find a retailer online at bodyscience.com.au forward slash retailers.